You're listening to Just Asking with therapist Stephen Ng. It's a conversation on what we're all thinking about, but no one's talking about. Our sexuality and how to manage it intelligently. Hi, you're listening to Stephen Ng on Just Asking, where we talk about pretty much anything that has something to do with sex. And I'd like to invite you, especially today, to just pretend to be an interested little insect. You don't have to be a fly, but some sort of insect on the wall listening to a conversation about sex that you might not ever be able to have with anybody in your own personal life. I'm here today with my friend Jackie, and Jackie is broader friend. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Who's your friend? So last time we were here, <laughs> we were talking about religion and sexuality, and um, it became clear pretty quick that I don't know what I'm talking about on this. And so I wanted to bring somebody way smarter than me to talk to you about the Bible and sexuality and homosexuality. This is Kathy Baldock, who I've known for a bunch of years. Mm -hmm. And every time I have a um, Bible question, I will call her because she's read it how many times? Enough. Enough. <laughs> and, and, and continually. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. she's really, really smart. She's doing amazing things in the world. And I've been wanting you two to meet for a really long time. So this is Kathy Baldock with Canyon Walker Connections. Thank you so much for introducing me. Hi, Kathy. Yeah, I've been wanting to meet you too. Really? Yeah, yeah, I have been. And And are all the rumors true? I really am. Whatever they've been saying. I, no, I, I, I don't. I, I can't I just, even I imagine just wanted to. what that. You know, you're just a you local know, person that talks about topics I'm interested in. Well, the fact that you're Jackie's friend has always been uh, comforting to me because this is a subject. You know, sexuality in general is a subject that people get kind of uh, lit up about, get emotional, uh, stop being thoughtful and rational as they, I would like to think, usually are. So I was looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, and when I, when people try to have those uncivil conversations with me about this topic, I disconnect rather quickly. I just don't do it. What's okay, the this could be a short interview. I don't know how this is. That was like foreshadowing, Unc I think. Uncivil, I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mind discussion, and I don't mind difference. Well, Kathy, for those who are listening, Kathy um, is really uh, for one of the foremost experts on the history mm -hmm. Uh, the relationship between LGBT communities and the church. Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah, and you and you wrote a book uh, in 2014. I did. It's called Walking the Bridges Canyon, and it's a it's a 450 pages. It's substantial, and it's I think it's well researched. It has over 500 footnotes. I care about research. I care about truth, and it uh, it looks at the history of the cultural and religious discrimination against the LGBTQ community in America. And it takes a different approach because I look at um, ancient history. I look at the roles, the sexual and social roles of men and women. I look at uh, psychoanalysis of human sexuality, politics, uh, religion, the Bible, and then people's stories in the last five chapters. So it's pretty full. And um, yeah, and I'm on a second book now. So um, I want to know more about the second book later yeah. on. If I hope we can get into that, so mm -hmm. people who liked your first book can start wetting their appetites for reading this new book. Right. But in the, um, but going back, before you wrote your book, uh, you years before you wrote your book, you were attending church uh -huh. as a fairly conservative yes. Christian. Is it uh, uncomfortable for you for me to use the word? fundamentalist? I wouldn't have considered myself fundamentalist because Just, I think fundamentalists 
I think the difference between a fundamentalist and myself is that fundamentalists really adhere to Bible inerrancy. And I do see discrepancies, and I, you know, it might be offensive to some people, but I see the Genesis story as a, you know, pe the way people talk about their relationship with God. I don't see it as scientifically accurate. In my former life, I, well, I started college as a physics major, so heavy science, and then ended in engineering school, so heavy science. And so I, I believe that you can be a person of both faith and respect science and the world you see around you, the testimonies and lives of people. I think those can all be incorporated. And I think a fundamentalist, when it comes between what they see in the Word of God and what they see in front of them or even science, they will go back to what they see in the black and the white or the white and the red, you know, in right. the Bible of and believe that first. I believe you can hold them all together when you look at them correctly. So I would not see myself as a fundamentalist. So in your experience, uh, is there a difference between the way the fundamentalist church and other conservative churches handle LGBT issues? Well, conservative churches hold um, that homosexuality would not be congruent with any kind of um, intimate relationship that you could have with another human. I think that would be consistent with conservative and fundamentalist. Um, I think it's now the progressive churches, progressive Christian churches, and a lot of Protestant churches and mainstream churches that are more open to listening to same-sex relationships, marriage equality, but people that would label themselves conservative and fundamentalists, that you won't find many of those churches being welcoming to the gay community. They'll sometimes use the word welcoming. Many churches in this town do. We love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, but stop lying. <laughs> stop bait and switching. Right. And what I want to say about that is sometimes people will hear, um, oh, there's this town, the church in town, it's hip and cool, and all my young friends go to it. Please come with me. We love gay people. And it could be the last stop on someone's church search because they've been spurned so many times. And then they go to hip and cool, everybody loves the young people church, and they find out the expectations are just as high, you know, that they should change their orientation there so they can have a, a relationship with God. So a lot of people call themselves welcoming. But when it comes down to it, evangelical churches, there's not very many. I would say there's less than two dozen in the country of any size that are led by straight pastors that are fully welcoming and embracing of gay, con gay and trans congregants. There, there would be no difference between them and any other person in the congregation. Those are few. They're very few. They are increasing, and there are lots of pastors having those conversations behind the scenes. But the reality is, Steve, that they're afraid to go that way, especially if they're of any size, because you say that you're going to let LGBT people come into your community, and probably half your church budget will be walking out the door within two months. That's yeah. a lot of risk. And, and I promise not to do this too much, but I wanted to talk about the language you just used, if we can. I know, And I know you're sensitive to language. So when you said, um, do you remember using the phrase, this uh, high standards, when they, these churches have high, the same high standards as, say, a fundamentalist church? 
And I, and I, I suspect I what you, yeah. yeah, I suspect what you meant was rigid standards. Yeah, because I actually consider myself quite orthodox, um, within context. I, I think I'm a Christian of very high ethical standards, high sexual ethics standards, and I just do not adhere to inerrancy. And I certainly don't think that the Bible is a science book um, written about human sexuality. Yeah, I, I, you know, from my own readings, I would say it's, it's a wonderfully historically vivid picture of maybe what was going on back in the day, you know, in terms of sexuality, for example. I can imagine, um, I mean, and some of the stories are just fascinating and illuminating and taken in that light. But in the sense of being theological or doctrinal regarding who's okay and who's not okay, then that's when I start getting uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, um, believe me, I am totally tempted today to get into the nuts and bolts of the theological controversy. But I was wondering if you could, based on your experience and your, your, your knowledge, can you describe what is it like for a young gay person who is trying to find their place in a conservative or evangelical church? Okay, if they're um, in high school and junior high sort of years. Let's say they were born into it. You know, their um, family goes to that church. They, they will be hearing from the youth pastors, uh, whatever the church party line is. And typically at 12, they're starting to under, well, at five to eight LGBT youth start understanding that there's something different about them. You would never call it sexual, but it's just like, I may have had a crush on somebody when I was five, a teacher, you know, uh, a, a person in a store, you know, that served my family all the time. So it wouldn't have been sexual. It would have been a recognition of, oh, I noticed that person. Well, by the time any person gets to about 12, there's some attraction to another person same or opposite sex. And a person that's same-sex attracted is definitely going to notice that they're different than their friends around them because of the language that goes on. You know, they don't notice, a young gay boy may not notice that Sally, the cute one that everybody is after, is cute. He notices David, you know. And then typically it will take them about, um, it may be a little bit compressed now, but typically two to three years before they even come out to themselves. And then another year to a year and a half before they come out to a best friend. And then depending on how churched their family is, their parents are somewhere down on that list. Because the last love a child wants to lose is the love of a parent. So they'll try it out in other places to have these conversations. But if they're sitting in a church community and they know or they're suspicious they suspect that they're different than their friends. And oh my goodness, if they're trans, <laughs> that would be even a greater stressor on them. And they're getting messages from their church. And they're hearing, they're hearing subtleties and nuances that pastors may not even, or Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, may not even understand that they're communicating. But they're certainly hearing that something is wrong with them. And that if they don't change, they are not worth the love of God. And what a devastating message that would be, that if I come out, I have the chance of 
I have a fairly good chance of losing my family. But not only that, I'm not even good enough anymore for God to love me. That's devastating. And as I said, the more entrenched in a conservative community a child and family is, the greater risk it is for that child to do behaviors that will be very destructive in their lives. So there are churches that are welcoming LGBT youth, and kids are flourishing in those environments. Yeah, 12 in yeah. the United States. Of evangelicals. So UCC, Disciples of Christ, Congregational, Episcopalian, Methodist churches. There's ELCA. not all. Lutherans, right. And not all Lutherans, not all Methodists, kind of all Episcopalians. <laughs> all UC, well, not all UCCs, but, and even some Catholic churches are, are accepting. Right. I mean, it just depends on geography. But Baptist churches, I have several friends that are Baptist pastors, and once they have come out as welcoming, because usually the thing that draws them there is their own gay child, they get kicked out of the denomination. Once they turn welcoming. Yes, they do. Can I ask a question on sure. this? Um, because you started by saying that some churches will bait and switch with mm. the, the promise of being welcoming. Mm -hmm. How do you know before you go if it's true or not, if it's truly welcoming? I would, if I were someone that were interested, I would call and have a conversation with them. And the questions I would ask are, am I able to come to your faith community, your church, with my partner and act as any other couple in your congregation would? Can we have appropriate uh, affection, hand-holding, touching each other? And am I able to serve in any ministry that I am gifted to serve in. If I'm gifted to serve in the children's ministry, can I, can I serve there? If I've got an incredible voice, can I be on the stage in the worship group? Are there restrictions to me because I identify as LGBT and am in a relationship? I think that one simple question would be a very powerful and effective litmus test on finding out which churches are truly welcoming mm -hmm. or not. And what would you recommend if the if the listener who's asked the question, he's asking the question, and he or she is hearing some waffling on the other side, what would you recommend that they do? Not go there. <laughs> I mean, part of churches, it's not only a place for people to serve and to express the gifts that God's given them, but it's a place to grow. And if you cannot be who you are, and if you cannot fully identify as who you are in every aspect of your life, and being LGBT is not just about who you have sex with, my goodness, it's, if, if it were that simple. If you can't express who you are, dress how you feel is appropriate for you, uh, be friends with who you are, talk about the things that are important in your life, that's probably not a place you're going to have to grow. Relationship with God is all about intimacy with God. And if you cannot be emotionally, relationally intimate with those around you that you can see, it certainly makes it a tad bit more difficult to have a relationship, with an intimate, transparent relationship with a God that you cannot see. So the people in your congregation are kind of like God with flesh on them, and they help you work out these more, you know, heavenly relationships. So almost, I know very few people that are not stifled 
if they have to be closeted. Yeah, I was thinking it's almost as if these other people are given to us as sort of a kindergarten of intimacy, uh, because if we can't love them, and they're tangible, yeah. and we can see them and interact with them, and then then you have this relationship with this guy on the other in the other dimension who is intangible and odorless, colorless, invisible, and, and often has the traits of the pastor speaking from the pulpit. Yes. So if he, in, at least in your mind, right? Not yes. actually. So if he is condemning to who you are, it would be quite difficult to get around that message that somehow God finds you acceptable and fully loves you. And there's a lot, there's a lot of beauty in having that, the knowledge of that relationship in your life. It gives you, well, it gives me the courage to do a lot of things. Um, I am very glad that I have a faith component to me. It gives me strength. You know, everybody's got difficult times, and it gives you strength. Um, I also, um, I think because of the work I do, and I know it's the will of God to do it. For some people, it's a hard description to say, but I feel the pleasure of God all the time, and it feels good. Well, I would imagine you do feel pretty good because you're actually walking in love toward this very unloved community. Mm-hmm. As as far as the mm-hmm. conservative fundamentalist yeah. churches are concerned, so it's a little bit like really getting what Jesus was talking about when he would be talking about lepers or the disenfranchised or women or anybody really. And it gives me um, opportunity too to love those that are less than lovely to me because I am fairly high profile within the activist movement. And I get plenty of nasty mail and plenty of comments towards me. And it is really hard to push that button in me. It just now, doesn't happen. Yeah, and the irony of getting that from people who are claiming to follow Christ more closely mm-hmm. is not lost on any of our listeners, I'm mm-hmm. sure. You know, you said a few minutes ago that you would rec- and and I was a little surprised, but you, you said you'd recommend that they just don't go. Mm-hmm. And... You know, to that church. To that church. To that church. And they do have other options. They have more mm-hmm. liberal churches they could go to uh, with different or lower standards, depending on your point of view, I suppose. And I, I think that because they do have those other standards, uh, other churches have other standards, the person does have some, some choice. But if you're raised in a fundamentalist yep. church, you know, you're raised with this idea— whether they like to say it out loud or not, that ours is the one true church and that we don't compromise on the gospel. Of course. And, and, and that, that's what the other the people in the other 30,000 Christian denominations also believe. Right. Yeah. Well, but not the Episcopalians. They're pretty open. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for the person who's been raised in that, there's another shift they have to make intellectually, yes. isn't there? Yeah. There then is. maybe they need to look at their own biases and start trying other churches. And it is difficult. It's very difficult. But there's also a lot of options now online. There's a lot of churches that live stream, podcast, have videos on their websites. You can still get that part of community. And um, I think you don't have to be in church for community much of the time if you have community. Um, I have a friend in town who... When he didn't feel comfortable in churches, he had uh, a 
dinner once a month was LGBTQ+. And 20 to 30 of us would get together. And honestly, sometimes it was better than church because the conversations were wonderful. The intimacy was wonderful. Um, the relationships were great. They were growing. And we all knew what the bottom line core was. It was LGBTQ Christians or people that were interested. Or it, There are other ways to allies. do community. Allies. I, you know, I identify as an ally, advocate. Um, but there are other ways to do community. But if a church is hurting someone and will not allow them to be authentic, I just don't think that that's a... Some people are called into those communities to help them change, but you have to have a good skill set to go do that. Well, that would be a rather remarkable person, something like a prophet in the wilderness. I do know those people that do that. And yeah. they keep pushing for conversations for the church leadership. And a lot of them, after some point of time of getting pushed back and seeing absolutely no progress year after year after year, they do leave. And welcoming church, truly welcoming churches are increasing in number. So now that's, good that's news. a good option, uh, uh, you know, option too. So yeah, and, and it is. There are people that are willing to flip that switch. But for finances, Ugh, don't I hate saying that? But yeah, well, churches are businesses too. That's true. You know, actually, I, I don't know why I have been caught so off guard by the idea that more and more churches are becoming welcoming because I'm a man of a certain age, sixty-four, and I recall in my childhood when no one was welcoming. Right. So, and now I know, just like you were saying, I know that there are huge denominations that are very welcoming. Mm -hmm. And the people in those denominations are very welcoming, and they really couldn't care less. You know, when we when we talk about people and their God, and and you know the admonition to to become like Christ, take on the mind of Christ. What do you suspect that the mind of Christ is regarding our sexuality, especially in terms of orientation? Well, I can't. You know, when I've said this before. People struggle with it, but I think God, Jesus, they're just orientation blind. They just look at the hearts of people, the relationship, the individual relationship a person has with God, and then the respectability and the appropriateness and the graciousness that you you also show then in your horizontal relationships. And yeah, people will say, well, show me in the Bible where it says that God's okay with same-sex relationships. I can't show you that in an ancient text. That would have been absolutely absurd of texts written through and in the lenses of patriarchy. You never would have seen equal status, same-sex relationships. Not in Jewish culture. Well, not, you know, not in ancient cultures. You didn't even start seeing them in this culture until the turn of the 20th century and then people didn't understand them and still male relationships there was still a power differential to some degree in those and when women were having same-sex relationships no one believed that there was any sex associated with it because women weren't sexual right i mean women didn't even have orgasms till 1956 <laughs> I've read that. Yeah, I've read, I've read that. that. You know, and, and once in a teaching when I said that, my mother happened to be there, and I was born in 1956. So I looked right at her, and I said, oh, Mom, like, good job. You know, you figure that out, and boom, I was born. And 
but we just didn't have we didn't understand that women were sexual. I mean, Freud even tried to 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 correct and to fix women that were enjoying heterosexual relationships. Our views our views of sex have so drastically changed from the 1880s until the 1970s, you know. They've changed radically changed over the millennia that went before. So if how can we we don't hold ourselves we don't live our lives in an ancient patriarchal culture in any other respects. I mean, we don't kill our children when they sass us. Right. <laughs> and we do wear blended fabric garments. Yeah, yeah. they're just all kinds of things. You know, I was thinking about this thing about God and knowing God. And once you have it in your head, as you do, Kathy, that God isn't terribly concerned about orientation or and in, in, in our sexuality maybe isn't really quite his preoccupation. Yeah. It's more about these other things, the development of our character, our, our growth as human beings. Um, I like to play a game of what, what if. And I, I often ask very conservative evangelicals, well, what if you got to heaven and St. Peter said, you know that thing on gays? You guys were really wrong on that. There's a lot of gay people in here. You still want to come in. And... I have yet to meet one really conservative fundamentalist who would say, oh, I'm not going into heaven. If, if, that's, if there are gay people there, I'm out. Because we change. But, but short of that abrupt kind of change, uh, because of this funny little story, if there really was a pearly gate and St. Peter really did mount sentry duty in front of it, um, what would you think if... At the end of the day, all the biblical scholars ended up saying, you know, we were wrong in our more liberal views, and actually God really does hate gay people. If, if, if that was the Judeo-Christian God. You know, if I got there and that's what I found out? Mm, you got there or you found out on this side of— um, I'd, I'd very much struggle to think that that's the kind of a God that has shown up in my life— and has worked through me. How could a God like that, a spirit like that, work such love and graciousness in me if that's not attributes that he or she himself had? Um, if I am, and I think I am, um, an earthly expression of what the spirit of God would be like, and if those gracious attitudes come out of me and they they emanate from somewhere, and I choose to believe they emanate from a sacred being. How could that sacred being not be better than me? Yeah, maybe you can help me because I, I – um, and I'm not just saying that because honestly, if I found out that God was that way, that, that unloving and that unkind, I think I would have to stop thinking of him as a god. He'd be more of a super-powered bully. Well, right? I would just never believe it. I don't <laughs> care who'd say it. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not a, like, I don't follow rules terribly well just because someone says it's true. I, I, I go by, I. Well, you know how I people talk. You've yeah. been in enough churches that, you know, the God who killed the Amalekites. Right. Uh, you know, he will, in the end, you know, mete out justice to all those who've chosen this lifestyle. And can you, you know, as a historian, can you tell me, 
When was that language first used about choosing a lifestyle? Do you know? Well, I'm going to guess that it would have been in the 80s, but um, in the 70s, people were still talking about preferences. But once, once Anita Bryant joined the party in 78, a lot of focus came on the LGBT, LGB community. Nobody was talking about T's yet. And when pastors, evangelical pastors, then the first book I know that was written by an evangelical pastor on this topic was Tim LaHaye, and he wrote a book called The Unhappy Gays. You know, Tim LaHaye of The Left Behind series. I want to say debacles. <laughs> <laughs> I want to call it a series. You know, those 13 very interesting books. But um, he wrote about it in there. And people before that weren't t- talking about lifestyle. They were seeing it not as a a sinful attitude. There's a very, there's an interesting progression of how people have also within the faith community, how they saw what homosexuality was. And the 50s and 60s, progressive pastors were agreeing with the medical community and seeing it as a mental illness right? or, and or, a lack of mental development, a lack of, you know, just Freudian stuff. Developmental delay. Yeah, psychosexual diseases, right? Every neurosis was attached to a psychosexual disease, and they just hadn't progressed enough. They hadn't progressed past the child stage, so they were still in that stage of loving the same sex. So, But those progressive pastors, they weren't trying to look at homosexuality as a sin. Those first pastors in the 50s and 60s were looking at it as a, a mental deficiency that they should pass these people, when they came into their offices for counseling, they should pass them on to a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst. Right, And that changed when the evangelical conservative churches got mixed up in this. They didn't pass them on to the experts. They became the experts. They labeled this now not a mental illness. They labeled it a sin, and they ran with it. And I can tell that by looking at translation notes. So that's the current work I'm doing is to look at these different versions of the Bible, the translation notes from the teams, the actual notes, as they grappled with these six, five or six passages of scripture, how do the members of the team choose to see these words, which have become, in some translations of the Bible, homosexual? So I could see, did they understand what they were talking about? Did they have any appreciation of human sexuality? Did they, or did they say, yeah, nail the dirty, filthy gaze? Or did they just understand that it was a sexual deviation, and that's what the verse was talking about. And the only sexual deviation we know today is homosexuality. Good, done. Next verse. Right. I was reading one Episcopalian writer who said in his book on uh, Christianity and homosexuality that the verses, as he understood them, were more about idol worship, uh, not sexual orientation. And that as an act of idol worship, uh, men were having sex with um, what would you call them? Uh, slaves? Well, a lot yeah. of people will say it's temple prostitutes. Yeah, temple but prostitutes. But there's other ways There's other ways to look at those verses too, but how I see it really is immoderate, excessive sexual behavior. Don't, don't do with your body what like your life is not willing to say. 
Don't do with your body to other people to use and abuse them. Don't use other people for your own sexual lusts. Um, it's just don't don't misuse sex. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking of a completely unrelated topic, and but it has to do with the Bible and Old and New Testament in terms of uh, slavery, the institution of slavery, and the re- the attempts in the Bible to regulate slavery pretty much give um, acknowledgement that it's okay mm-hmm. to have slaves. Mm-hmm. And we've had no problem, well, at least most voters <laughs> have had no problem moving past that and moving on with the discussion. But it, it seems like uh, sexuality is, we're still not caught up with that. You know, we still, we, we're not, it's not like, would it be okay? Would it be unthinkable for a conservative person in a, a church like the one you might go to to say, yeah, they got it wrong? Yeah, and, and typically two things lead to that. First one being relationship. They'll be in relationship with an LGBT person. A real human being. A real person or their own child or their favorite nephew comes out or their best friend's son, and all of a sudden it becomes personal. And then... Um, and then, of course, education. But what you were saying about slavery is really interesting because if you go back to the late 1800s, um, it was just as lively a conversation using the Bible exactly. to support slavery. Um, Mark Knowles has written a great book, uh, The Civil War is a Moral Crisis. And you can read that book and you can honestly replace all those conversations about slavery and substitute human sexuality in there. And it's stunning that we've done this before, and we made it. We made it through it. We stopped slaveholding. I mean, some people still haven't stopped slaveholding, but but we've made it through that. And we are going to make it through this. I think in 20 years, it's going to be the minority churches that still withhold uh, membership or attendance to LGBT people. Um, just as there are still, I'm sure, churches that will not let a person of color be in leadership or right. even attendance. Or a woman. Or a, <laughs> a woman. Now, there's a topic. Yeah. So um, so people are still struggling with these, but younger Christians are going to change this conversation. So a few things are going to change this conversation. Younger Christians won't tolerate this. The resources coming out are phenomenal. The, 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 the academics coming out on this issue for affirming are great, and I hope to be part of that. Um, pastors are understanding this. The lives and testimonies of LGBTQ Christians themselves. And another huge part of this is the parents. Whereas five years and beyond back, if your child came out as gay and you were in a conservative faith community, you would have sided with your church stance. Now those parents, typically, and now those parents en masse are siding with their children and confronting their leadership. They may not stay. They may stay. But the parents are a huge factor in this now. You've touched on a topic that's dear to my heart. Um, As a, a heterosexual, I too have experienced a certain level of discomfort with the messages of the church, the conservative church, in regard to human sexuality in general. And I was wondering if you had anything you could say to us about the damage that is done to heterosexuals with our attitude toward the LGBTQ community. Well, I can answer it in a different way. I can say how I've seen people grow when they become accepting. 
So I have seen uh, uh, like the lid come off of their attitudes of grace and mercy. I've seen people that become affirming and accepting um, just become more gracious people, more merciful people, uh, people that are now sensitive to other people on the margin because it's not just LGBTQ people on the margin. We have lots of people on the margins. And once you start noticing one, you start noticing others, that you just become, I think, people that are willing to see and walk alongside empathetically people that are not like them, get better at doing that that with a lot more types of people that are not like them. So the church will benefit greatly and reflect Jesus more accurately the more we become welcoming to people that are not like us. So how it damages people is they don't get to have that kind of growth. And that's a problem. Well, Kathy, it has been just enormously fascinating to listen to you. Thank, this has been Thanks. a great conversation. Thank I had a you. great time. Oh, good. I'm so grateful. And to there's you, so much more in this, this packed up. little head here. Oh, and I, I, I think we should have you on again sometime. I, but, but for people who want to know more about you, they could get your book. Yeah, it's on Amazon. I can talk at you. You can listen. You can do whatever you want. It's called Walking the Bridges Canyon. I've got a website called CanyonWalkerConnections.com. I'm on Facebook. Do you um, want to just real quick where that name came from? Canyon Walker, yeah. Um, in 2001, I was uh, walking in. I live up on the Mount Rose Highway, and that's I hike every day up there. And I was hiking in the canyons, and came across a woman named lives here in town, Neto Montoya, and a woman completely unlike me in every respect: woman of color, Native American, Hispanic last name, lesbian, atheist. And I mean, completely unlike me, but hiked the same way I did, same pace. And I just saw my life changing in those canyons, but also I see that the work I do is I walk between these two canyons of people, the conservative church and the LGBTQ community, not just Christians, but the community itself, and trying to not really bridge this gap, but get them to talk to each other again. Kathy, thank you again so much. And you've been listening to Just Asking. And I'm Stephen Ng. Join us again soon or contact us at... You can tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT with your questions and comments.